Well, we have Midweek Media Watch, and this week Colin Peacock is at the helm. Colin, welcome to the programme. The political honeymoon is over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Indeed, yeah. It's plenty going on, isn't there? A new government uh, taking over. No shortage of that stuff in the media. So, of course, we had the the ceremonial opening of Parliament on Tuesday, then on Wednesday, more uh, pomp. Mm-hmm. Ceremony and dignitaries, the the speech from the throne uh, with the Governor General and the state opening of Parliament. Um, so also the day before on the Tuesday, the first day the, the House sat, uh, telegenic or photogenic, I'm not sure if that's quite the right word, but the scenes with the protests in many centres. Of course, the media loves uh, protests, good images, particularly when they're all around the country. And uh, they were organised by Te Pāti Māori, so that gave it another um kind of edge on the day of the, the first uh, the first sitting there. And uh, that included one protest in Wellington that then migrated uh, down to Parliament. So, yeah, quite something on day one. You have <laughs> protests organised by, uh, you know, one of the parliamentary parties, you know, out on the, the forecourt. Uh, and then, of course, there was the stuff that went on inside, sort of symbolic protests um, during uh, the ceremonials um, with Te Pāti Māori MPs pledging allegiance and, uh, you know, using some alternative oaths. Not not just Te Pāti Māori, other, other parties did that as well. And then there was uh, the outfits, you know, they were much commented on as well mm. in the media, particularly um, the Green Party MPs sporting um, their kefir uh, garments in solidarity with uh, Palestinians, and that certainly seemed to trigger uh, some people who, you know, polarised by that conflict, thought that was a bit out of place. Uh, so, yeah, very colourful, uh, lots for the media to show and talk about. Uh, News Hub on Tuesday for their 6pm news said, uh, all this, right at the start of the bulletin, all this is a taste of the political theatre we can expect for the next three years, they said. And then in a report from their political editor, Jenna Lynch, uh, News Hub had a kind of uninterrupted belt of senior politicians. This went on for about a minute, uh, just all mashed up together, criticising each other's conduct. Uh, It was quite a listen. Oh, it'd be awesome to see the oath change. So we saw our own oath, how we think an oath should be sworn in in Aotearoa. It should reflect the Tiriti or Waitangi, but there also should be a commitment to our mokopuna. I actually think it's narcissism. Uh, It's all about them when everyone else can be respectful of the institution that they have worked hard to be elected to. But I did notice that after all the theatrics, uh, they still swore allegiance and signed up to make sure they get paid. He called it performative narcissism. Yeah. Do, do you agree with that? No, he can go jump in the lake. Seymour labelling to Party Māori's protests theatrics. If, if it was about us, I love living rent-free in his mind and um, it will continue to... Preposterous that the Māori Party should think that they are the authentic voice for Māori New Zealanders. I remind everyone again, that party got less than 3% of the vote and a lot of their party voters were not Māori. A lot of them were hippies. <laughs> quite a collection there, uh, Colin. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, what the, no, no one could speak up for the hippies. You know, they're not quite <laughs> represented. I wouldn't have thought that. But there you go. Not a lot of uh, common ground. But, um, I mean, is it presumptuous of News Hub to say it'll be like this for the next three years, for goodness sake? Well, yeah, I thought so, actually, because, uh, I mean, these, these are new combinations, obviously. A lot of grudges, a hard-fought election campaign, clear differences in a change of pattern. You know, of course it's going to be like that. And I was thinking back to uh, 2008, after the election, John Key-led, mm. national-led government comes in, and... Um, uh, Peter Sharples and uh, Tariana Turi, as she was at the time, later Dame, um, 
they were members of parliament. They joined in with the national government. I mean, people had said after the foreshore and seabed upheavals just um, not long before that, um, uh, the, the similar claims were made that this was going to be a chaotic time mm. and all of that. And it, it, it didn't happen like that. So maybe the novelty of this situation in parliament will settle down as the political parties themselves settle down. Business actually, as usual, resumes and the media kind of get used to that. Um but it was also interesting to me, a sort of a separate point really, but some of the media's critics and you know former journalists sort of now operating outside the media, just one example, um, the former ZB announcer and I think former TVNZ journalist Chris Lynch now running his own operation down in Christchurch, mm-hmm. he was one of those accusing the media of supporting and even promoting those Tabati Māori-led uh, protests on Tuesday. And I, you know, I just think that's... You know, there was clear interest in that. They were newsworthy. It was tied to the opening of Parliament and uh, genuine political issues that were going to be debated and will be all week with the sitting of Parliament. So, yeah, no problem with that. And I thought it was, um, I thought it was a bit silly to criticise them for yeah. actually promoting them. I mean, there was something that couldn't be ignored. You can't, yeah, exactly. You can't not promote it in a sense or, or cover it. Um, or acknowledge it, yeah. 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 There was one party, though, that wasn't represented in that audio, if I detect correctly, uh, from News Hub, that... Uh, the governing National Party leading the government, the media, are they trying to draw them into the arguments as well? Well, I think, yes, that, you know, no National Party person in that little belt of audio. And maybe they're wary of that. They kind of leave the arguments to others now that uh, they're trying to push this line of actually getting on with business and the real um, approach, uh, the real challenges facing the country. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, of, of all the comment on this and their their sort of tactics in putting this government together, a lot of people have noted the Prime Minister appears to be giving a lot of leeway, particularly to Winston Peters and other leaders in terms of their comment, not trying to pull him into line and be disciplinarian and run the coalition that way. But of, of all the comment of this, just pick out one. So Audrey Young, the, he, uh, the Herald's seasoned political correspondent, uh, yes, yeah, she said this week... Uh, Headline was pretty blunt. The honeymoon is over. I don't know if they even had one. I think they went straight pretty into business. Short one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but she wrote uh, that when you add up, when she was looking at it from the point of view of those protests on Tuesday and the fact that there is now you know significant resistance and um, irritation. I don't know what the best way to put it is, but among uh, Maori people who have looked at what the government's planning and are at the very least nervous about it and in some cases you know, willing to take to the streets in a whole range of places around the country on Tuesday. She said when you add up the coalition government's plans, just quoting her here, there are a fair few policies that explain why the protesters feel targeted. <clears throat> so uh, she went on to say, as well as Act's move to try and get rid of the principles of the uh, Treaty of Waitangi, it includes commitments to review the work of the Waitangi Tribunal, curb the use of Māori in the titles of Crown agencies, disestablish the Māori Health Agency, repeal the right of councils to establish Māori wards without referendum, repeal the law giving Naitahu two seats on Environment Canterbury, repeal three waters, which includes the regional co-governance committees, repeal replacement laws for the RMA, which included Māori representatives on regional planning committees... Pause. <laughs> remove a treaty clause from the Oranga Tamariki legislation and a pledge to overturn a recent Court of Appeal decision on the foreshore and seabed. And to all that, she could have added, actually, um, well, that's come out in the last 24 hours or so, Nicola Willis now saying they're examining how to stop the um, future payments to civil servants uh, who have uh, gained fluency in Tareo. You know, that was that's yeah. another thing. So you add all that together, and, I mean, maybe people have been paying more attention than I have would know about all that, but that is 
quite a list of you know Maori specific policies. And Audrey went on to say um, Christopher Luxon now has a big challenge to address the sense of division his government policies are creating, all in the name of eliminating division. But mm-hmm. when it was all laid out like that in uh, you know just a few paragraphs, that is a lot, and that does help explain perhaps the scenes we saw on on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And probably not the last we'll see them either. The government's mantra has always been that it's all about the cost of living for Kiwis. Um, in your mind, is the media focusing on that as well as these other things? Probably will as the government itself moves on to this after the yeah. ceremonies are over and now the business of parliament and government takes over. But as some uh, pundits predicted uh, Finance Minister Nicola Willis has said, oh, I've had a good look at the books now that I'm in the big chair and, you know, she's horrified by it all, talking about economic vandalism um, taking place under the Labour government, borrowing heavily to prop up the economy. Um, And uh, Audrey Young again, uh, referring to this, says um, this is going to become as tedious as Labour's mantra in 2018 about national so-called nine long years of neglect. I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, that did go on for a long time. Nine long years, you know, they were just nine years, you know, the years weren't any longer than anything else. But uh, yeah, that, that looks to be a theme that we can expect to hear a lot of in our media. Isn't that why we have the prefew, the uh, the pre-election fiscal update, so no one gets that, I guess what you call them, uh, like a Muldoon-style surprise when they take over the Treasury bench- benches? Yeah, well, that's that's what I thought. So oh, I was point. looking for a good explainer of this. So I thought there was a the whole point of it, the Public Finance Act and all of that, because of what happened in the 1980s. Um, and perhaps the best one I found was the you know the conversation the um, website run it's a academic website so the universities bankroll it and their experts um, get to write uh, comment pieces which get circulated and run by other media I think TVNZ ran this one on their website which is mm. where I picked it up uh, Michael Ryan from the University of Waikato's economics department he said uh, look that. Um, that preview document was 164 pages long. A quarter of it was dedicated to the risks to the fiscal forecasts. Um, so he was saying with such an extensive examination ahead of the election, you would expect the risk of a shock or surprise uh, for an incoming government to be low. He said there are four possible explanations for Nicola Willis's apparent surprise. Um, the Treasury might have missed some of the fiscal risks, but Michael Ryan thought that was unlikely given... Um, the pretty comprehensive statement of risks that was in that document. Uh, new risks might have developed since the prefu in September, but that's not very long ago. Um, also, she says the risks that Nicola Willis is referring to might have been mentioned in it, but the magnitude of them was not clear to them. Uh, and if, if this was case, you know, if this is the case, more needs to be done for the prefus in the future. Um, and you know, finally, he said, look, this could all be smoke and mirrors from the incoming government to mm. walk back on election promises. That's a possible political interpretation there. But um, saying, you know, they had to make coal- uh, concessions and coalition agreements with the other two parties, and that is what's actually tying uh, their hands here. So his kind of verdict was the odd surprise might happen, but um, New Zealand's fiscal policy legislation is pretty good at promoting transparency. And if there is a surprise in the books, a genuine one, it shouldn't be of the magnitude that he says Jim Bolger experienced in 1990, and we should all be grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Pretty strong words, though, isn't it? Economic vandalism. Uh, by Nicola Wilson. yeah, indeed. Yeah. Actually, other writers on this, Thomas Coughlin at the Herald and uh, Bernard Hickey in his own Daily Bulletin, the Kaka, uh, looked at this, and Bernard was really saying look, the test of this will be in that mini-budget in uh, December the 20th, I think it is, that yeah. Nicola was, is going to announce it. So if she is going to make some... Uh, 
possibly as yet unanticipated moves and cuts, then that will have to be justified. And we'll find out then where, uh, you know, she really felt that uh, there wasn't sufficient headway or sufficient notice of the the financial uh, position we were in. And we seem to have been getting quite a few headlines overseas from the media there um, with the change of government here. Um, reported this week, the oil and gas ban reversal has been criticised at COP28. Climate talks, I think, we're the fossil of the year. Fossil, yeah, that's right, <laughs> on day one. Yeah, that wasn't yeah. good. And the rollback of the anti-smoking measures has been reported with surprise as well overseas. Yeah, when I heard that, I thought, I wonder. Um, but when... Um Recently, the Conservatives in the UK had their party conference and their Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, under huge pressure from his own party, he pulled out this policy saying, we're going to copy New Zealand, we're going to have smoke-free generations in the future and denicotinize and push back the sale date, just, just copy New Zealand's policy uh, entirely. And people were there in the UK were highly suspicious, saying, well, this is a you know, a distraction from the Prime Minister who's under real pressure. Um, but he was up there, you know, earnestly talking about saving thousands of British lives from cancer mm. uh, and I got contacted by the BBC went on their Radio 2 programme to explain what is this, is this really popular are the you know, libertarians uh, unhappy about this and, and you know, freedom of choice and all of that and uh, yeah, they, I think they are shocked having, <laughs> having promoted this, particularly in the UK, it was just so recently that their PM adopted it. They were startled uh, to find that it's been rolled back. I also found an article in Time magazine quoting Christopher Luxon as talking about the, um, the black market opportunities, which would be untaxed, you know, this, this rationale that he's now talking about. Also referencing... Um, it would be bad uh, he, that he told RNZ that concentrating the distribution of cigarettes in one store in one small town, I think that's the Northland example, yes. is going to be a massive magnet for crime. As we now know, he's had to walk that back, and that's uh, not right at all. But yeah. um, the most startling, though, was this feature that actually predates all of this. This dates back to October, and it's an online feature for the US-based outlet NPR, National mm-hmm. Public Radio, as was, but now very active online as well as... Um, you know, radio stations around the US. And this one um, was all about, um, in fact, I've got it here. The headline is, it's one of the world's toughest anti-smoking laws. The Maori see a major flaw. And this is by a freelance journalist who's actually a medical specialist. And even he traveled to New Zealand. It's full of photographs. It's a very long piece uh, mm-hmm. in detail. But in it, he talks to the new health minister, Shane Retty, um, Back then he was in opposition, of course, and back then he was telling, um, uh, what's his name, Simar Bajaj of NPR, uh, we are concerned about high rates of tobacco addiction and the expanded black market. This will disproportionately impact Māori via more dangerous cigarettes and police crackdowns. Um, he goes and talks to community advocates who are very concerned. Um, and, uh, and indeed, Shane Liriti again talks about, uh, given New Zealand's incarceration rates, over half of prisoners are Māori, despite only representing 17% of the population. He, you know, he expresses these worries again and again about an invigorated black market. So interestingly, people felt kind of ambushed by this when this policy was rolled out uh, post-election. But um, actually in the month of the election, he'd been talking all about it with this um, American outlet. So really mm. interesting. But uh, I should also mention, though, um, mm. the one New Zealand story on the day Parliament opened, uh, or no, it was, yeah, it was on Tuesday actually, uh, made the front page of the New York Times, the print edition and online. Uh, it was actually a story by New Zealand's Journalist of the Year um, at uh, the Voyager Awards, Peter McKenzie, all about um, Kiwis hatching and thriving in um, Makarapikan 
in Wellington, and this was a happy story about um, wildlife survival and um, you know and, and coexistence with urban development. And uh, yeah, well, very happy story. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. New York Times readers might have emerged with a better impression of New Zealanders than readers of other outlets overseas. Is that the famous Mackenzie family? The, uh, uh, well, is it, I, Peter, I'm, is he from the, the, with his sister, Thomason, the, the wonderful actress? Yeah, that's right. So his, yeah. I think his mum is Miranda. Miranda. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Stuart, I think. Yeah, that's right. Very good. A lot of talent in that family, in that DNA, right? For sure. <laughs> After seven years now, this is kind of sad because I watched the end of the program, one of those people that watches the end of programs out of some curiosity, but it was, it was a nice show they did, actually. Uh, the TV3 show, The Project, came to an end Friday evening with uh, some quite emotional scenes. Yeah, they, done. they are emotional, those end of, end yeah. of programs, aren't they? But seven years was a good run. Yeah. Um, or, although, you know, the thing is that the, you, you get to see where they assemble all the people and then you realise you know, they had quite a crew out front, you know, I think four hosts every night and guests mm. and, you know, so a lot of faces. But when you see all the writers and so on, people like Anna Samways and Jose Barbosa, and, you know, you realise that this is actually a really big enterprise and those daily shows are hungry beasts that require mm. talent and writing and all that. So that makes it all the sadder. John Bridges, of course, too, like a really Producer, talented yeah. producer. Um, also, you know, they had the executive, the, the boss, Glenn Kine of Discovery Warner's, who'd obviously made the difficult decision, but he was there, which is, um, you know, quite something. Mm. Um, and Sarah Bristow, the outgoing um, head of news, who, who uh, was, was there as well. So, yeah, quite quite a, um, a poignant um, scene, I guess. But I'll give you a sense of how a bit of that ended when the show itself got underway, uh, introduced that night by uh, Jesse Mulligan. At that point, we never imagined, did we, that it, was last, uh, that it would last this long. Okay. And then in other ways, it sort of felt like we would be doing this job forever. But here we are. (laughs) It's become our home, really. Tonight, we are going to remember some of the amazing moments and incredible people that we've had on this show. Jackie Brown, Mark Richardson, Paddy Gower and Kate Roger will be joining us. our family and friends and we have got a whole extra room full of mates and staff because we're so popular. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, uh, well tonight anyway, uh, we're going to go out with a bang, uh, stick around for all the most wonderful and weird stuff that's happened over the years and also we've used up the last of the budget for some fireworks at the end of the show. Fireworks. (laughs) You heard me. (laughs) <laughs> Fireworks in the studio, well, that'll go over well. Yeah, health and safety. You know, but uh, no, it was a bit of a gag because um, I think Jeremy Corbett lit up one solitary sad sparkler and handed it to Jesse Mulligan. Uh, was budget it the other budget constraints, was it? Yeah, and I think that, that was, so, so um, the spin-offs Duncan Grieve was in the studio for that final taping, wrote quite a long piece about it. He saw that as kind of emblematic, you know, we close on this little fireworks, spluttering away, he wrote, catching glimpses of the faces who made the show in its dying light. Yeah, all we could afford. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> well, when the closure was announced last month, uh, the owners, um, Discovery Warners, made it sound like it was a money thing, that the show was just too expensive in tight times for the company. Is that the reality? Yeah, it seems so. I mean, if you think of, you know, that 7pm thing used to be so huge, you know, TVNZ, Prime, Mm. uh, TV3, all back in the day with their biggest names, you know, Paul Holmes and um, all of that and John Campbell. Campbell. Uh, Yeah, but now I think it's a struggle and the audience um, attention and appetite for that same sort of thing isn't quite there, albeit that people do tune in for the Seven Sharp show on TVNZ and, and mm. so on. Um, 
But yeah, Duncan Grieve again writing in the spin-off says it feels like this symbolises something bigger than just the project. Um, the ratings are down for everything. Linear telly, once the most powerful force and something the vast majority of us were watching, you know, at least something on a linear channel, even if it wasn't news-based. Um, now we could be watching one of billions of pieces of niche content from anywhere on any mm. device, etc. So he said the project uh, was always comparatively expensive to make and sometime this year three decided it could no longer afford to make it. And getting the, the advertising revenue in, pretty challenging these days. Of course, one of the big things with the project was it was that Aussie format, wasn't it? Uh, and that, that was, I understand, quite expensive. Yeah, I don't know quite what it cost to do that. But, you know, at first you thought, well, why would you buy a format just for yeah. like a news-based chat show? But uh, Rove McManus, uh, Aussie TV star, had um, had sort of kicked it off. Look, at the, at the time, I was a bit sceptical because it just seemed like when it started it wasn't quite funny enough to be comedy and not uh, it was a bit too once over lightly to be news and I, yes. um, I, I, was, I was a bit harsh on it when I went back and listened to the old programs because I was <laughs> still doing Media Watch back then um, actually I cut an example of it this is from its first week on the air I think um, and I, this is one I think illustrated the problem it was a pretty sort of breezy treatment of the closure of the Cadbury factory in Dunedin What happens now to the annual Jaffa race? It's not like you can use Mars bars instead. And if production heads across the Tasman, you know what this means. Yet another thing the Aussies will say was theirs all along. Are you still are you still planning on boycotting Cadbury? I think I kind of have to. I grew up with the smell of Cadbury's chocolate wafting in the air in Dunedin, and I, I want to stick by those guys and say no. Well, can I just add this, that for you and for the other people thinking about a boycott, the uh, head of the union, Air 2, who uh, represents the workers in, in uh, Dunedin, has said today, please don't boycott them because you may be putting the workers' jobs at more risk. So find another way to show your protest. And, and by okay. workers, he means Oompa Loompas. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Topical Wonka's coming out soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, about seven years late. But yeah, that, I think that might have been Rove McManus with the joke at the end. But I guess, well, the problem I saw there was, you know, this was a big issue in Dunedin, a major employer. Yes. It was huge. And trying to wedge in the gags, you know, it's obviously part of the format that, you know, the, the jokes, you know, peppered in and the, and the banter. And so I don't know if it really worked. I mean, there was nobody from Dunedin spoken to on that program. I think people there would have found it a bit galling that, you know, people were trying to find ways of making light of it in a studio yeah. up in Auckland. But, you know, having said that... Um, it got going. It overcame the problem. Yeah, yeah and know, I think did that's... news in a fun way. Yeah, I think that's down to producer John Bridges because, you know, all those episodes, 1,500 episodes, if people hadn't really reacted in the way that I thought they might, it wouldn't have gone for that long. Mm. And John was pretty good. He used to make documentaries of his own and programs taking an issue um, with a kind of quirky look, you know, but recognising not everyone wasn't his sense of humour and so on. Uh, it'd be interesting to talk to John a bit more about it. He appeared fleetingly in that final program. But no, I think, you know, albeit maybe the, the Aussie format bit didn't help initially, mm. but they've clearly turned it into something and the presenters, you know, uh, bedded into it. And uh, they found ways of, of certainly dealing with um, important issues mm. and personal issues and things like that. And it ended up being a much better blend of, um, you know, stuff that did matter to people, whether it was serious or not so serious. So what I, I think programs like that are always missed you know, so I'm sure it will be because, you know, it had its presence at a prime time each night of the week. Yeah, and Duncan Grieve for the spin-off, he made another point actually, which was, you know, forget about your ratings and viewing habits. Um, I'm kind of 
putting words in his mouth here maybe, but it was almost like the death of creative ambition. And he said mm-hmm. similar things when Today FM, the radio station, died. And a lot of people said, oh, you tried to take on a big competitor in News Talk ZB. Didn't work. You didn't have enough appeal, whatever. But they tried to do new things online, make podcasts, all that sort of stuff. And anyone engaged in that who finds that that was all over within a year, you know, once you go through that process, I think it's harder for people. They become less willing to commit to things that are a bit risky, um, you know, particularly, you know, local projects. I think that's hard. So you know, he makes the point that, you know, what's next? Maybe, you know, Shortland Street, you know, which uh, is a big established audience, part of the culture for those who are fans, you know, would, is that going to be next? We might have to rethink all of this. You know, it's a process that, that won't stop as those big audiences for TV kind of decline. Mm-hmm. Mind you, then you get the Broken Wood Mysteries, which uh, sells all over the world. It's not even probably made for New Zealand anymore because it's been so successful, uh, you know, everywhere else. Yeah, and done without, I think, any New Zealand television network having to invest in it or public money, I think, yeah. Four minutes uh, and just a bit to 11, so we've just got time to have a chat about uh, the numbers, running the numbers, the costs of broadcasting, making tough decisions. We've been talking about this earlier this evening. Sky TV ups its charges. Yes, I heard you talking about about that so yeah the cost of interesting one so the um the cost going up about four or five dollars for sky sports and mm. also for this neon channel but the more interesting thing i think was uh it's the second price rise in the year for the sports and people are noting oh so spark sport goes down uh and that content gets spread around sky or tvnz acquired some of it and then the price goes up twice interesting so mm. they don't think that's a coincidence but i don't know uh, how that market <laughs> works but the neon channel you know interesting you know with its highbrow hbo stuff and the game of thrones spin-offs and all of that going up to 20 dollars a month or 200 a year seems a lot to me but the big thing is putting ads now around the movies I think people paying for a premium channel don't expect to see ads and that is a tough one uh, possibly a risky move yeah well I wonder if it is and of course you know you do have the choice don't you uh, of going elsewhere. Yeah, um, and people thought Netflix were talking about this. We might introduce a cheaper sub if you were prepared to tolerate ads. I don't think it hasn't happened yet. I don't think anywhere in the world might be wrong about that, but certainly hasn't happened in this market. And people were worried, like, if, if Netflix did that, it would have an effect all across the market because, you know, a lot more people might go for a cheaper option, tolerate the ads. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, unintended consequences in these sorts of things. And finally, the Herald has had a bit of backlash. Um, who'd have thought trimming the space it gives to letters to the editor? Yeah, and the backlash came from a former editor, Gavin Ellis. <laughs> he writes a, a, a very good weekly commentary on the media in his uh, one on Tuesday. He said, hey, I didn't notice this, I have to say, but from the 20th of November, the space given over to letters was cut in half by the Monday in the Monday-Friday editions and replaced uh, half of that space taken up with a, a photo of the day and a banner for News Talk ZB's Kerry Woodham show, and they're saying that could have accommodated lots more letters. Mm. And in Gavin's words, there's something wildly illogical about uh, this when media are striving to find ways to engage with their audience. The largest paper in the country uh, devalues, Gavin's words, one of the few ways readers can engage with the print publication. Mm. Why do you think the Herald has done this? Well, Gavin says, oh, it's just money. Uh, photographs are a cheap way of uh, filling the space. And, you know, you've got, there's a lot of work to do picking out those letters. How do you balance them up? What are yeah. the good ones? You've got to sub-edit them. And uh, also now that they've got a digital first strategy, perhaps the, you know, the letters on the page, 
not quite such a priority anymore. So either the time and effort that goes into you know marshalling those letters, yes. uh, they they are not prepared to put that effort in anymore. That's his interpretation. And do you think it is people using other ways, like for example social media, having their say, being able to publish what they, their thoughts? Yeah, uh, that's that, that's certainly true. There's all those options, but Gavin is saying, look. These are different. When you write a letter for publication, you've got to give an address for verification. You know, your name is definitely on it. And it goes down in the record, not just into the digital morass. And he's saying that's sobering uh, prospect. So the printed letter has a permanence. And because of that, people do tend to write, this is my interpretation, now not Gavin's, mm. uh, like a small essay. You know, they will marshal their thoughts in a way that they wouldn't with a blurt in a tweet or a social media post or something. But Gavin says, I pity future historians centuries from now trying to piece together 21st century society you know the artifacts will be few and far between as the digital data degrades and is lost and uh, you don't have the record of the past that you might have had of the tattered remains he says from more than three centuries of letters to the editor he should have written a letter to the editor about it really well he did but he actually wrote about (laughs) something else he said yeah you just marked 160 years of the herald and he says you didn't properly acknowledge the wilson and horton founding families of the herald you should have done that um so yeah he wrote to them about that instead well, that is a bit of a gap, it has to be said. But yeah, anyway. but, but they didn't publish his letter. <laughs> <laughs>